Songs are a funny thing, aren't they? Some songs make you dance. Now, I know we're maybe not that kind of Baptist church yet. Some of you might be some closet dancers. Some songs make you think, make you reflect, make you ponder. Some songs make you laugh, and some songs make you cry. I would not consider myself a country music fan by any stretch of the means. Honestly, I can't remember the last time I took time to listen to an entire country song from start to finish. But there are a few country songs that I do remember that pluck my heartstrings if I were to hear them again. Don't play any tricks on me, people. The two, though, are Alan Jackson's hit song in 2003, Remember When. And the second one is the frequently played wedding reception song that was first put out by the group Heartlands in 2006, I Loved Her First. Alan Jackson's song, Remember When, was a tribute song to his wife, Denise, who, in writing this song, who had been married together for almost 25 years. The song lyrics go like this. Remember when we vowed the vows and walked the walk. Gave our hearts, made the start, it was hard. We lived and learned life through curves. There was joy, there was hurt. Remember when. The lyrics go on to describe the ups and downs that many marriages face. However, Jackson's lyrics mark important milestones that brought them back together. In particular, the three daughters the Lord gave them, Maddie, Allie, and Danny. The song then continues, Remember when the sound of little feet was the music we danced to week to week. Brought back the love, we found trust, vowed we'd never give it up. Remember when. The song then concludes by issuing a reminder of how much is still to come for the couple. and The knowledge that they'll even look back on those tough days, those tough seasons, as something to love and cherish that made them stronger together. Remember when we said we'd turn gray, when the children grow up and move away. We won't be sad, we'll be glad for all the life we've had, and we'll remember when. To say the least, it's a sappy, reflective love song of a husband and wife looking back on their lives together as they remember when. And then there's Heartland's hit song, I Loved Her First which is basically a father's tearjerker recollection and love for his daughter as she's grown up and about to marry a young man. And this young man needs to hear from that father that her father loved her way before he ever did. He loved her first. Now brace yourself, I can't read those lyrics this morning because it is one of the few songs that I lose it like a big baby. You can talk to Julie and see that I am sparing all of you this morning. At least like me with that latter song, what are those songs for you that are a tearjerker kind of song? What are those songs that seem to pluck your heartstrings? And why is it that songs sometimes have a deeply moving impression on us? Well, the best songs out there put into words what our hearts and minds have a hard time saying. And songs that touch our hearts are typically songs that stir up memories that have meant something dear to us. Whether that's songs that stir up memories between a husband and a wife, or between a father and a daughter, or even songs that maybe we remember our grandparents 
singing to us when we were little kids. I'm sure we have all those soft spots somewhere along the way in our life. We remember where we were. We remember who we were with. And we remember why those memories are still dear to us, even after all these years. We all have soft spots. Even the tough guy among us, if you poke and prod, sooner or later, you'll get that tough guy to tear up. Uh, Soft spots, though, really serve us as memory banks. They're memory banks that help preserve those moments and seasons in our life that have meant so much to us. Those special moments with family members and friends and those life-changing and character-shaping experiences with mentors, disciplers, and pastors that sometimes, friends, we wish we could get back. When we see that picture, when we hear that song, when we look at an old email, we wish we could relive those moments again. Or perhaps just the one opportunity, just one, to see them again. Because you missed them. Friends, songs, poetry, and even well-written stories, they exist and are crafted together in order to captivate our thoughts and stir up our emotions not as an end in and of themselves. They are simply meant to put into words what should be true and real in our actual everyday lives. And what is it that should be true and real in our everyday lives? It's love. Love. A deep and abiding kind of love. A sacrificial and selfless love. A heroic and heart-moving kind of love. A love that leaves an indelible impression on those we cared for. A love that leaves a long-lasting impact on another person's life we've invested in. An impact that is made because of a personal investment of one life into another person's life for God's glory and their good. Brothers and sisters, it's this kind of love that God calls us to experience. Yes, us in our everyday life. A love that first begins with God displaying his love to us through his son, Jesus, living, dying, and rising again for us. A love from God the Father and Jesus our Lord that is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has come to live within us. And friends, it's God's amazing love that is powerful enough to penetrate our hearts. But it's so powerful, it compels us to have that love spill over into a love for others in a deep, heartfelt kind of way. A love that pursues, commits, invests, inspires, mentors, models, encourages, endures, and equips another person to know and love God. Equips them to love his church. Equips them to love Jesus in such a way that their life testimony, their life purpose is to fulfill the Lord's will in their life. 
And friends, it's this kind of life-changing and heart-penetrating love, far greater than Alan Jackson, far greater than Heartland's songs, that we see depicted for us this morning between a seasoned Christian who invested in a younger Christian that left an indelible impact for the sake of the gospel. And we find that this morning in our new sermon series, through the letter of 2 Timothy. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 578. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can read. Take that as a gift from our church to you. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This morning, we begin a new sermon series in Paul's second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy is known as one of the pastoral epistles of the New Testament. 1 Timothy and Titus are the other two. If you read all three letters together, you'll notice the common themes of Paul's letter to these two young men he had taught and trained for gospel ministry. Uh, Some of you may recall, if you were here back in those days, we covered the book of Titus in fall of 2021. Uh, We saw there that Paul gave Titus instructions on the island of Crete, how to bring order to chaos in these immature churches that needed leadership, and direction. And similarly, Paul would write Timothy in 1 Timothy, just a few years earlier in 2 Timothy, about what church order should look like and how Timothy should conduct himself as a spiritual leader in the Lord's house there in Ephesus. Uh, Since we'll be in 2 Timothy until late November, Lord willing, I would encourage all the members of our church and guests, if you're going to be here for a while, I would encourage you to read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So we did Proverbs for a whole month. Now I'll give you some more guidance. Spend the next two to three months camped out in your quiet times, small groups, or family worship. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And friends, I think it'll properly and adequately prepare you for each Lord's Day as we walk through this. One thing you'll notice about Second Timothy is though there are similarities to Titus and First Timothy, it takes on a very different tone. It's a very personal tone. John Calvin even said of this letter, it is written, quote, not merely in ink, but in Paul's lifeblood. It's a letter written from a man, the Apostle Paul, who was on the verge of death row under the Roman emperor Nero. Nero had set a flame in Rome, as we've been learning through 1 Peter's letter, to have Christians unjustly martyred to literally set them on fire and use them as flashlights and torches throughout Rome as a mockery to them and their Savior. And here Paul has been thrown in prison multiple different times in his life, but this time he's most likely in this small little Roman prison cell. It's cold, it's dark, it's dingy, and he's all alone for the most part. And it's there in that dark and lonely place he pins Second Timothy. If you look at page 11 in your worship guide, as I do when we start a new book of the Bible, if you kind of want to just place yourself in redemptive history, uh, the chart there gives you an idea of when the letters of the New Testament were written. Look towards kind of the three quarters of the way to the right. You should see 2 Timothy, and you'll see that it was written sometime into the mid to late 60s A.D. Now, while Paul was in prison multiple times in his life, Paul talked about him having chains in prison this time around 
with no expectation he's getting out. Philippians, he was pretty hopeful he would get out. His first Roman imprisonment, Acts 28, he pretty much knew he would get out. Not this one. He knew he was on death row. He knew the hourglass under God's sovereignty was about to be completely emptied out. Second Timothy is Paul's last words and farewell address to a young man named Timothy that he loved like a child. He would write this letter before he would breathe his last and depart from this life. And as we study this letter over the next few months, friends, we're going to see what meant the most to this man. Paul knew a lot of people in his life, planted churches, trained men for ministry, met a lot of Christians all over the Mediterranean, was widely known in Jerusalem, and you know who he wanted to see? You want to know who he wanted to be near him in his final hours? Timothy. And so when we're reading this letter, you should read it not as a black and white newspaper kind of way, but we're seeing the journals of a man who had penned his last letter to a young man he deeply loved more than a lot of other people in his life. 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 5. Please follow with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as I did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now I am sure dwells in you as well. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea for this morning's sermon. I'll repeat it about four times throughout the sermon. Two up front for you. The Christian faith is passed on through deep interpersonal relationships and faithful ministry partnerships. The Christian faith is passed on through deep interpersonal relationships and faithful ministry partnerships. Now, why is that statement even significant? Why are we at CCBC spending two and a half months staring at a letter that was written nearly 2,000 years ago from one man to another man we will never meet on this side of heaven? Why is this letter even relevant? Well, author and pastor Tony Morita answers that question I think he gives an excellent answer for what we will discover of why 2 Timothy needs to hit us between the eyes right now in 2023. Here's what he says. This letter is both timely and timeless. For what can be more important today than to rightly guard and give the gospel to the next generation? It is often said that we are one generation away from losing the gospel. If the gospel is assumed in one generation... It will be neglected, ignored, and or abandoned in the next. 
we must keep guarding, suffering for, and continuing in proclaiming the gospel. Friends, 2 Timothy is immensely important for Christians like us today for a whole host of reasons. So at the outset of this letter, so we can begin to put our arms around the elephant and begin to grasp why this letter should hit us right between the eyes. I'm going to give you three reasons, and I'll name them one by one throughout. This letter is important, number one, because Jesus gave us the great commission, not a kind suggestion. Jesus gave us the great commission, not a kind suggestion. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, because sovereign King Jesus gave us the charge to make disciples of all nations. Do you know what that means? We cannot make any excuses to God that we're bored with the life he gave us. We don't have any excuses to make about being aimless or having no purpose in our life. You see, before we were Christians, life was all about us. What we could get, who we could know, how much we can accomplish to fill up our personal dream or bucket list. But when we become Christians, our lives are no longer our own. You see, friends, when Jesus gets a hold of our hearts, he helps us see we've been living life backwards the whole time. He begins to show us what we were made for, a kingdom that will never end, a family that will never abandon us, namely the people of God. You see, friends, when we become Christians, the most fundamental thing that changes about us is our identity and our purpose. Our identity and our purpose. Our identity changes. We get more than just a new driver's license or a new dog tags. We go from being dead in sin on a highway to hell to being securely loved in Christ with a citizenship in heaven. Our identity changes from being separated from God to being united to Christ. And then our purpose changes too, right? He gives us a new identity. He gives us a new direction, a new purpose. We begin to live for a transcendent purpose, a purpose outside of ourselves, a purpose bigger than ourselves, a purpose bigger than our own little boxes that we live in from week to week. What is that transcendent purpose? Well, friends, it's, it's being a part of a kingdom that is everlasting. It's being a part of seeing the gospel advance all around the globe. It's seeing the church, the bride of Christ, built up and shining beautiful as she looks more and more like her bridegroom, Jesus. It's yielding our lives in humble obedience to God as he makes us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, this letter is relevant to us because Jesus gave us the great commission not a kind suggestion. And friends, that means what we'll see here is that 2 Timothy helps us put back on that kingdom of God helmet and gives us the right mindset that endurance will be required 
to stay focused on that purpose. Second Timothy is also very pressing and relevant to us today because number two, we each have a stewardship from God. We each have a stewardship from God. Uh, friends, you know this from previous sermons. I'll just remind you, stewardship is about management, not ownership. Stewardship is managing the property, possessions, money, and relationships that belong to another. As servants of the master, Jesus Christ, we are stewards. We don't own anything. We are money managers for what God entrusts to us. We are parents who care for children and grandchildren, but those children and grandchildren are on loan. They are not ultimately belonging to us. They ultimately belong to him. And friends, even down to how we respond to faithful teachings of God's word, we are held accountable to the light we've been given and the truth we have heard. Everything, spiritual gifts, energy, money, relationships, it's all a stewardship from God. And friends, that's just me just trying to bring this to our attention today. That means we can't afford to waste our life. We can't afford to spend our days always living for Friday, living for the weekend, living for the next vacation, or the next, what's your fill in the blank? What's that next thing that you just keep thinking about, but you're wasting right now? Friends, if we live into the next, the next, the next, we're going to look back on our life and realize we wasted it. We wasted it. We wasted it. We wasted it. So, brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you feel somewhat trapped between living in the past, nostalgia is your best friend, or you're anxiously always longing for the next season, the next this, the next that, friends, here's what we need to do, okay? Ready? Just stop. Breathe. Remember these truths. Wherever you're at, right now, be all there. Not in the past, not peering into the future. Wherever you are, be all there. God is with you right now. God is good all the time, which includes right now. God is in 100% control of everything you and I can't control. And that's both the past, the present, and the future. Uh, to this end, Jonathan Gibson exhorts us here. Live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you think you will have, but which you actually cannot control at all. In fact, 2 Timothy echoes this very important theme of stewardship, faithful stewardship, not wasting it, not squandering it. Again and again, this is what's going to be an echo through all these sermons, giving you the cliff notes up front, right? So just to kind of give you the texture of 1 and 2 Timothy on this idea of stewardship, lick your finger and go back to 1 Timothy. If you didn't wash your hands, don't do it. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. Again, 1 Timothy is written probably two to three years before 2 Timothy. Similar but different letters. 
Look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 5. Just notice the language Paul gives to this young man. He says, it's 1 Timothy 1, 3, as I urged you when I was in Macedonia, I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look down with me at 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. He now amplifies what he said back in verses 3 to basically 7. Look at verse 18. This charge, notice what he says, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now go over to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, very end of this letter. 1 Timothy 6, look at verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. There it again, that stewardship language. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge, for by do, professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now go over to 2 Timothy, our letter today. 2 Timothy, look at chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. All right, look over at 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then last one, go over to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and notice his last phrase, fulfill, complete, finish your ministry. All right, now go back to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy is very important, again, because it is pressing in on us that Jesus gave us the great commission, not the kind suggestion, and because we've all been given a stewardship in life, in ministry, family, and all the above, a stewardship we're going to give an account for. But one last reason I want to bring up why this letter is crucial for our ears today, especially for a church like us. We're almost three years old. Our birthday as a church will be in about two and a half weeks. It's been a wonderful first three years, but we can't live in the last three years. We need to be thinking about not just the next three years, but the next 30 years, friends. Now, why is that? Reason number three, 2 Timothy is relevant. To be a faithful witness for Jesus today. We must also care about the generation coming behind us. 
To be a faithful witness for Jesus today, we must care about the generation coming behind us. Uh, Friends, the Old Testament screams this exact echo that spills over into the New Testament. The Psalms are filled with Israel being charged to tell your children about the statutes of God and the deliverance out of Egypt. A couple of examples, Psalm 71, 17 and 18, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Oh, to the older saints in here, didn't call you old, just older, here we go. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And then again, Psalm 78 Verses 5 to 8, you can read that on your own. And again, even Deuteronomy 31, 12 and 13, Moses charged Joshua, assemble the people, men and women and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord. And be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You see, friends, from the Old Testament with the Israelites, with the exchange and leadership between Moses to Joshua, even now into the New Testament, from parents to pastoring, from mentors to disciple makers, from local evangelism to global missions, the same attitude, the same heartbeat, the same love for the world God had, and he spoke to Abram in Genesis 12, is going to be fulfilled in a people from every tribe, tongue, and nations singing the songs and praises around the Lord's table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, all of those that Jesus Christ shed his blood for. Friend, God is going to fulfill his promise to draw a people from all tribes, tongues, and nations that sing hallelujah to King Jesus. And it only happens here when we are faithful in thinking about our stewardship to the next generation. Jesus will build his church. But to be a faithful witness to Jesus today, we must care about the generation that is coming behind us. And friends, it's to those three important reasons that I've sought to try to prime the pump on why 2 Timothy is so relevant for us. Look down with me in verse 1. Paul begins basically like he does in the vast majority of all his New Testament letters. He first identifies himself by his name, Paul, and then identifies his office in the church. He calls himself Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's an apostle? Well, it's one, it meant one who was sent, one who was authorized by another, one who had authority to be an ambassador to represent the interest and desires of a superior. And here, Paul says he was an apostle that was a representative, an authority, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul knew what God had called him to do. He was an apostle chosen by Jesus, and Jesus directly told Paul, this is why I'm saving you, and this is why I'm keeping you alive for this purpose. And friends, that's what we see there in verse 1. He is identifying himself and reminding Timothy and all his hearers 
of what did God put his call in his life. In other words, Paul was not a mama-called minister. Paul was not a daddy-called pastor. He was not a self-called man. To that same point, he didn't just hear some kind of faint, subjective whisper or some still, small voice from God. He didn't flip a coin, shake up a magic eight ball, close his eyes and wait for a verse to mystically appear in his mind. No, he didn't go out searching and roaming around the world to find himself, to find his purpose. No, Paul literally had heaven's loudspeaker turned on as he heard the risen Lord Jesus call out to him and tell him what he was to do. Do you remember Acts 9, that dramatic story? Acts 9, 4 to 6, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Then a few verses later, uh, he's going to get his marching orders. Uh, Jesus tells this man named Ananias to tell Paul, I've saved you for this purpose, man. I've saved you not to be a terrorist against my people anymore, but to be a preacher of the gospel. Acts 9, 15 and 16. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's where in verse 1, Paul's making it crystal clear to Timothy and to everyone who would have received this letter in Ephesus that Paul knew what God had called him to do and what to do with his life. Paul was abundantly clear what God had called him to do. The apostles became abundantly clear in their minds what Paul was called to do. And hundreds and even thousands of Christians all over the Mediterranean world and throughout the Roman Empire and around Jerusalem, they knew what God had called Paul to do. That's why he says there, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Not the will of Paul. Not the will of his mom and dad. Not the will of his subjective feelings. But the will of God. Friends, we may not have a dramatic and supernatural audible voice pierce our ears from heaven and tell us what to do with our lives, but we are given the living and active word of God, the scriptures in our hands. So friends, if you ever ask the question, God, what's your will for my life? What should you do? If you want to know God's will for your life, stay immersed in the book. If you want to hear God's voice, read his book. If you want to hear his voice loud and clear, read his book out loud. And as you read his book, pray for a humble and teachable heart. And at the same time, keep your hands open with your plans, your future. And then we should ask others who fear and love God to speak into our life true and wise words of counsel and then affirm or discourage what we see or don't see God doing in someone's life. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. 
Proverbs 69, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And friends, when we've done those things, when we're living in the book, God's spirit is convicting and encouraging and directing us through the counsel of God's people as well. We walk by faith. We lean not on our own understanding, but lean on his. And never forget, the Lord is always the best interpreter of our circumstances. We're not. He is the perfect author of our life. We're not. He is able to lead his children better than his children can hear his voice. Friends, trust him because he is trustworthy. His will is perfect, and even if we don't understand what God's doing in our life right now or in the weeks or months ahead, he will make it plain when we need to know what to do next. Jaya Packer once said, God is not in such a hurry as we are, and it is not his way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present or to guide us more than one step at a time. When in doubt, do nothing, but continue to wait on God. When action is needed, light will come. Now, by God's grace, In God's sovereign providence, Paul knew who he was and he knew what God's will was for him in his life. Crystal clear right there in verse 1. But God's will for Paul's life, and Paul knew this, was so much bigger than Paul. It was so much bigger than even Paul and Jesus. God's will for Paul's life was going to touch, impact, and transform scores of people he would never even meet including us. Paul sees that the only reason he was saved and the only reason he was an apostle and the only reason God was using him to further that gospel, do you see there in verse 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Verse two, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. To my non-Christian friend, how much time have you spent taking the claims of Jesus seriously? Like if you were given a whiteboard for an eight-hour day, and someone handed you a black Expo whiteboard marker and said, write everything you know about Jesus Christ. How much could you fill up on that board? Well, friend, regardless if you know little or nothing at all about Jesus, this morning, I want you to understand this about Jesus. In Jesus, it's life. Without Jesus, It's death. In Jesus Christ, there is grace, mercy, and peace to all who belong to him. But without Jesus Christ, we are helpless, hopeless, and condemned for our sin before a holy God. You see, in Jesus Christ, the promise of God to give us abundant life, life as we were created to live, has been messed up. It's been severed. It's been frustrated because of our sin. 
I was speaking with a man recently this past Friday night who has wrecked his life because of selfishness, drunkenness, unbelief, and pride. And I'm going to tell you what I told him while he was sitting there on that bed. I said, sir, the number one thing that stands between you and all humanity, including me, and a perfectly good God who will always keep his word is ourselves. It's us. It's not the devil. It's not the world. It's not the economy. It's not who's in the Oval Office. It's not a foreign nation. It's not the fallen world. It's not the family I was raised in. It's not the spouse I'm married to. No, the greatest enemy to keep us from this wonderful, good, promise-keeping God who gives us life in Christ is us. What did Jesus say that is required to follow him? Mark 8, 34 to 37, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So kids, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, take seriously the words, teachings, and claims of Jesus Christ. With him is life. Without him is death. He lived the perfect life we failed to live the abundant life we were created to enjoy, but we forfeited because of our sin. And then he hung on a cross like a criminal would for sins he never committed. And he did that for all of us who've rebelled against this good God, but would turn to him by faith. God raised him from the dead and he gave us victory over our last enemy, which is death. This good God tells us to stop living for the tyranny of you. Self-sovereignty is slavery. Humble submission to this God is freedom. That's the good news, that he came to free us from the shackles of self-sovereignty, living for me, living for sin, and to show us the better, best, and the abundant life. And friends, that's why in this letter, Paul reminds Timothy what he already knew when he became a Christian. It's the same reminders we need this morning as the people of God. Did you notice what he says there in verse 2 to Timothy, my beloved child? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, you might be wondering, you know, why am I here today at this church? When am I supposed to, quote, get out of this sermon? Well, I hope you get a lot. But at least this, if you and I are looking to Jesus this morning, grace, mercy, and peace are lavished on you. What is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. He lavishes grace on undeserving sinners. We are loved and blessed by God with a kindness that we do not deserve. What is mercy? Mercy is the daily compassions that God doesn't give up on us. 
When our hearts are faint, his mercies are new every morning. God, in mercy, spared us from his wrath because he placed it on his son. What is peace? It's that permanent standing with God that you're right with him. It's permanent. It's once and for all. It's done. You're reconciled. No more hostility. No more wrath. No more separation. There is shalom. There is peace between God and man through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And friends, even when we lack peace subjectively, what does the Bible tell us to do? It tells us to cast all our anxieties on him. And the peace of God, which surpasses all other human understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you just need to be reminded today, God loves you. Grace, mercy, and peace. Right now, tomorrow, and when he brings you home to glory. That will never change. In verses 3 to 5, we see the unfolding of that main idea we started the sermon off with. You might say, what was that main idea? The Christian faith is passed on through deep interpersonal relationships and faithful ministry partnerships. And where do we see that in the text before us? We see that very clear in two ways. Number one, Paul dearly loved Timothy. Paul dearly loved Timothy. Look at verse 2 again. To Timothy... My beloved child. Why did Paul use such endearing terms to this young man? Well, it's in large part because God's kindness to save Timothy and then introduce Paul and Timothy to do life together. God had saved Timothy by his grace, made him a disciple of the Lord Jesus, and then Paul sought out Timothy to mentor and disciple him. This is really back when Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey. Do you remember Acts 16, verses 1 to 3? Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. You see, about two years prior to this event, to this jumping on the plane, if you will, with Paul on his missionary journeys, uh, Timothy was converted under the preaching of the gospel. It was either Paul's preaching or Barnabas's preaching or Timothy's mama and grandma got born again under the preaching of Barnabas and Paul, and then they shared the gospel with Timothy. We're not really sure, but really in the end, end of all things, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> God changed this young man's life. You see there in verse 5, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Friends, in many ways, Paul loved Timothy before Timothy would ever love Paul. And in a bigger sense, in a much more significant sense, God loved Paul before Paul ever loved God. God loved Lois and Eunice more than Lois and Eunice would ever love God, and God loved Timothy before Timothy would ever love God. All loves we ever experience in this life starts with the first love from our Heavenly Father. 
which literally leads to point number two there, Lois and Eunice loved Timothy. This is a mom and grandma. Raise your hand if you're a mother or grandmother. Okay? Raise your hand if you have a mother or grandmother. Ah, told you I'd get you. They were both Jewish women who were pretty familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. We know from 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, that Timothy was familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures as young as a child. Presumably, that's because mom and grandma exposed him to the teachings of, a, of, the, of the Scriptures. But here, regardless of whether or not it was Paul who was preaching or his mom and grandma, they were discipling. They were investing in Timothy even before Paul got to him. Uh, Parents, we've been given a tremendous privilege by God to shepherd our children. We cannot save our children, but if God has saved us, he has placed those children in our path and in our life to show them Christ. Christ in us through how we live. Christ from us by what we teach them. So parents, parenting is not for the faint of heart. It's long, it's messy, and it's hard. But your children's souls, my children's souls, are worth it. God is often working in young people's lives when we least expect it. Keep bringing them to church. Keep having your Bible open in your home and at church. Don't be fake. Repent of your sin Have other mature believers help you shepherd your children well. If you don't know how to lead them in family worship or family devotions, find a man who can and learn now because it will reap dividends later. God is faithful even when we are faithless. Praise be to God. And members of CCBC, do we all see our responsibility to come alongside mom and dad, to co-evangelize, to co-disciple the young people in our congregation. God used Lois, Eunice, Paul, and as we're going to find out in this letter, for 15 years, Timothy and Paul traveled together. Do you know how many Christians spoke wisdom and influenced Timothy? It wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just Eunice. It wasn't just Lois. It was a whole web of Christians. Friends, that's why discipling is more than just a one-to-one endeavor. It's a web of relationships. I call it kind of gang evangelism and gang discipling. Just don't beat anybody up or be a bully. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's swarming the body of Christ, pouring into and influencing every follower of Jesus. Paul's writing this letter from prison. And do you know what his heart's filled with? Gratitude to God. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, even from a prison cell, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul thanked God for Timothy. Paul thanked God for saving him. Paul thanked God for Timothy's helpfulness and usefulness in the ministry with him. And Paul thanked God for Timothy because Timothy was a friend to him. It wasn't all business. They loved each other. You see there in verse 4, can you just in the moment just think about when he's writing this? Verse 4, 
As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Friends, when you and I form deep interpersonal relationships with other believers, we'll begin to love them as our own children. When you and I pour into our kids and grandkids the glorious truths of the gospel, bring them to church and introduce them to other godly men and women in the congregation, you never know how God's going to influence them for their soul for the rest of eternity. And when you and I form faithful ministry partnerships with like-minded Christians, like Paul did with Timothy, it welds our lives together into strong, maturing, disciple-making local churches that are going to impact the next generation. I conclude with this story from the 19th century missionary John Payton. John Payton was a missionary to the unreached people of the New Hebrides, located in a remote island in the South Pacific Ocean. I want to share with you a story of John Payton leaving home. He is leaving home for school, and from there he would be a missionary to cannibals. Recalling the type of impact his father made in his life as a young boy, would influence him to go to the most hostile, unreached people group in the South Pacific at the time. Notice what John Payton said in his journal about the impact his Christian father made on him. My dear father walked with me for the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that party journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as, they, as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was in vain. We halted on, reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I left him gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was around the corner in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the tree to see if he yet stood where I left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the tree and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return. His head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through the blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted 
his advice, prayers, and tears. The road, the tree, the climbing up on and then walking way, head uncovered, have often, often all through life, risen vividly before my mind. And so do now while I am writing as if it had been but an hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude, which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. You see, in Christ, there are investments we make in others. In Christ, there are investments others make in us. And in Christ, the best kind of investments are mutually enjoyable and mutually beneficial. The Christian faith is passed on through deep interpersonal relationships and faithful ministry partnerships. What is that looking like in your life these days? Who's investing in you? And who are you investing in to impact the next generation? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the church. We praise you for the body of Christ. We praise you for saving and raising up others to invest, mentor, and disciple. Lord, I pray today that we would think long and hard about the people you've put in our life to invest in us. And Father, we pray that in the gospel, knowing that you have first loved us, would motivate us to love others in that same manner. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.